listening to the Bill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We're going to read a passage there um, to begin our talk about Buddhism. That's that's the topic for today. We're on this month-long series of world religions. We're going to talk about Buddhism. And I thought this verse in Romans uh, applied somewhat to very much because it has to do with suffering and that's that's the big part of uh, Buddhist religion and it has to do with sin and how you overcome and uh, we'll, we'll get to that today but I thought this verse uh, I'm going to read all the way through verse 7 or verse 8 so here, here we go Romans chapter 5 are you there if, if not you can look up on the screen and hopefully see it up there but it says therefore since we have been justified through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's, that's a big mouthful of words and ideas there, but if you can get your mind around them, you understand, like, the, here's this message of salvation that we've been saved and given the peace of Christ through Jesus Christ by grace. Um, continuing on, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And we'll get to this idea and how sufferings is a big part of Buddhism. But we glory in our sufferings as Christians because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame, but God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And I'm going to continue. Verse 6 says, You see that just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, Verily, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person someone might possibly die. And then verse 8, the quote of the day that is on our bulletin says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. God, we do open this morning up to you and and we say that, that you are God, that you have delivered us from sin that you've delivered us from suffering and giving us, given us meaning behind suffering, that, that it develops our character, and, and that this world is, is not the end, that, that we do have a hope in you, a hope for the resurrection, a hope in the life to come, that, God, you have saved us and will save us from, from the punishment of our own sin in this world. And so, God, with that, we, we praise you. We do worship you. We love you, Jesus. And everybody screamed. Amen. So we're talking about Buddhism today. And I remember my first introduction kind of into Buddhism was, was kind of a, a drowning into Buddhism because I went to uh, several Buddhist countries right in a row. I spent uh, a summer uh, traveling, and um, I think we ended up going to uh, Japan, Thailand, Bangladesh, Nepal, China, and Tibet in this, in this trip. It was just me and two other guys. It wasn't like a missionary trip. It was just three guys traveling around hanging out. Sound like a blast? It was a blast. And so it cost a lot of money to do that. So to save up for that, we decided let's work construction because we're all construction workers. And so we we couldn't really get jobs around here that would pay that well, but we could get jobs in Vail, uh, Beaver Creek, Colorado. And so uh, there's like a big Ritz-Carlton up there. If you ever go there, go in and look at it and look at some of the ceilings and the woodwork that's on the ceilings. We did that. And so we made a lot of money and we we didn't want to spend our money on rent. So we bought a van and lived in a van in Pikes Peak Forest, uh, our National 
National Forest down by the river. And we saved up money, and then we went traveling, and we saw uh, all of Southeast Asia. Not all, I shouldn't say that. We saw a big chunk of Southeast Asia and the different forms of Buddhism that were there. And so we went to Thailand. That was our first trip. Uh, We landed in Thailand, and we saw things like this. I don't know if the picture does justice to to what's going on here, but there's like a little idol, uh, a statue of a god, and then like this big white kind of housing around this god, and uh, you would see these things out in front of restaurants, in front of bars, in front of houses, uh, just about in front of anything, and, and people, the, the, like the store owners or the house owner, would every day uh, make offerings to the god, and this person for some reason decided that he wanted to make an offering of strawberry Fanta I don't know if you could see that from the picture. It was very weird to see this for the first time. You're just like, what? The offering? You're just like, here's one for Buddha. And then like put it down and then put a straw in it. It was just really interesting. So sometimes there'd be money, like coins. Sometimes there'd be flowers. Sometimes there'd be food. Sometimes there'd be soda um, in front of these little statues. And what I saw in Thailand was a type of Buddhism that was like, whoa, this is interesting because what I saw, and this may just be my opinion of what I saw, but I saw a lot of superstition. I saw a lot of people just doing an act of like putting out a soda for Buddha so that they would be blessed in their, their house or their restaurant, their shop would be blessed. And so it's almost like I do this and then I get this. And then from Thailand, the same trip that we saved up money for living in a van down by the river, uh, we, we went to Nepal. And in Nepal is a totally different type of Buddhism, at least from what I could tell. And I learned later that it, in fact, was a different type of Buddhism because um, the Buddhism in Nepal that I saw was much more interrelated with Hinduism than it was its own thing because Hindu is mainly, excuse me, Nepal is mainly a Hindu nation. And so Buddhism looked more like Hindu stuff. And so here's a temple, a Buddhist temple that kind of reminded me of Hindu stuff. And and there was people that looked uh, Indian or Hindu. Some of them even had like the red dots and yet they're practicing Buddhism. It's like, why do you have the red dot? I thought you're, you should be a Hindu, but you're doing these Buddhist things and it's very much mixed in. And then from Nepal, we we went to Tibet, which seemed to be an even different form of Buddhism. And what I saw there was people working out their faith. People, uh, th- these people are in the Barkhor Square in downtown Lhasa, the capital of Tibet, uh, in front of the Jokong Temple, and they're bowing down to it. They're doing prostrations, laying out. They have like uh, some mats in front of them. They'll, they'll lay down, bow down in front of this temple, then stand all the way back up, put their hands above their heads like they're praying, and then go all the way down and lay back down. And they're, they're working. They're doing their faith. They're doing the actions of their faith, which is not something I saw in Thailand, and it wasn't really something I saw in Nepal. And then from there, we had this layover, uh, like an all-day, 24-hour layover in Japan, and got to see a little bit of the airport. It was really nice. <laughs> and, and from what I know of Japanese Buddhism is that it's much more interrelated with like peace and serenity and and there's there's not so much doing your faith or making little sacrifices to golden or buddhas uh but it's more just finding peace and serenity and the, and the beauty of the creation and uh these these awesome structures and so I was just blown away by the different types of Buddhism that I saw when I, when I traveled Southeast Asia. And so we're going to talk about 
some of that today, a lot of that today, and find out that there is a couple different types of Buddhism, too, to be specific, um, but then subcategories. But I wanted to open that up with just, just showing you pictures and bringing these ideas that, that Buddhism can mean lots of different things to lots of different people, and that's kind of the gist of the religion. And so, we are talking about Buddhism, in case you're wondering well, why in the world this is church, and we're in Sunday school, and we're talking about Buddhism, but we're talking about Buddhism as part of our world religions um, s- series this month. We talked about Hinduism, talked last week about Islam, this week we're talking about Buddhism, next week happens to be Resurrection Sunday or Easter, and so there will be no Mill Sunday school. So if you come here, you might be the only one uh, because service times are changing. The, the, big time, uh, the big service times are 8, 10, 12, 8, 10, 12. And I think Brady is asking if you're like a new lifer um, to come at the 8 o'clock or the 12 o'clock because we will have tons of guests on Easter like we always do. And I, we imagine that most of the guests will come at 10. And so he's asked like, oh, if you, if you can switch times, come really early or a little bit later. Um, as a part of the, our Easter services here at New Life. And then there's a 5 o'clock service Easter evening that we're going to do a baptism. Um, so that's an announcement. Um, if you're brand new, you can uh, fill out one of these cards. They should be on your table. It says the Mill Sunday School uh, a visitor card. And if you fill this out and bring it to the nice people as you leave in the lobby, I think they'll give you a CD that has some worship music from the Mill on Friday night. And, uh, and so that's just a little gift for saying, thanks for coming to the Mill Sunday School. We love that you're here. Um, I think that's all the announcements. So let's talk for just a second, give you an opportunity to chit-chat just for a minute or two, and maybe open it up to your tables or form a little tiny group and just ask each other um, this question, what do you know about Buddhism? Whether you, Maybe you travel to a Buddhist country like I have. Maybe you studied it in school. Maybe you've studied it in a church before. Maybe you watched a documentary. Maybe you know a Buddhist person or a friend. And so what do you know about Buddhism? Now, I want to preface it with if you say something and your friend says something that totally totally contradicts each other, and you're fighting about that, well, don't fight, because in Buddhism, there could be two totally contradictory things that are both true, and they would hold them as, oh, no, that's true, and that's true. And so don't start fighting about what you know about Buddhism, okay? I'm half kidding. But, but, But get into a little group, talk to each other for like two minutes. What do you know about Buddhism? Ready? Get set. Go. All right, let's, let's talk as a, as a big group. Um, did anybody hear anything really interesting that they want to share with everybody? We got a dude over here. His name is Patrick. He's really cool. He has a microphone and so, so that everyone can hear. That's just why we do the mics. Um, somebody get his attention and tell us what you found out about Buddhism. What I've, I've done a little bit of research in Buddhism. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot about it. And I get confused with the other Eastern religions. But what yes. I do know is... It's um, a religion on works. You're trying uh-huh. to work off the bad, get the good, basically a scorecard. Yeah, like they would call that karma. Yeah, maybe. karma. Yeah. And um, I, I want to say you eventually you try and become your own god, basically. Yeah, maybe in some forms you try to works. become your own god. Sure. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. Any, who else wants to share? Maybe in other forms uh, of Buddhism you, you want to become a god, or maybe in other forms you want to become nothingness. Um, and so we, we, we might hear today lots of different things uh, about Buddhism, and yet they, they could be very interrelated, and they could be somewhat contradictory, but all still true. Anybody else want to share? 
Just one guy? Thank you for sharing, by the way. Thank you. And nobody else? You're all scared? Yes, thank you. You guys are wearing the same shirt. That's sweet. We coordinated together. That's probably why you don't share, because you stand up and I make fun of you. I apologize. <laughs> I should stop. That, that's why. I just thought about that. And I was like, why do I? Stop it. Just go ahead, please. Uh, well, to summarize Buddhism, yes. Yes. Yes to what? <laughs> Anything. Anything. Everything. And everything. And nothing yeah. at all. Yeah, and there is a lot of, there is a lot of, um, because there's no absolutes maybe. Right. And there is no, we'll get to this idea that there, there, things exist in your mind. Like if your finger hurts because you, you pricked your finger on a thorn of a rose, well, your finger doesn't actually hurt. The pain is in your mind because the rose doesn't exist. The thorn doesn't exist. Your finger doesn't exist. You don't really exist. And if you can realize that, 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 that nothing really exists, then you will obtain enlightenment or nirvana and, and become nothingness. So there is no spoon. There's no spoon. If you don't know why that's funny, you need to ask somebody and watch a movie. Because that's really good stuff. Um, yeah, anybody else want to share? I don't want to force it out of you, so nobody? Okay, yes, thank you. The last one. Thanks for being the last one. All I know is that um, there's two different Buddhas, the fat one and the skinny one. That's We're all I know. Talk about that. That's all I know about Buddhism. There's a fat Buddha and a so, skinny Buddha. So that, if you could please yeah. explain that to us, yes. We, yeah, we'll talk about the fat Buddha and the skinny Buddha. Sure, why not? Um, let's do an overview uh, of Buddhism really quickly, which uh, we do know that Buddhism uh, claims to be uh, the people that follow Buddhism, and some people could follow it very directly and could really consider themselves a Buddhist. Some people could just um, live in a Buddhist country, kind of have no religion, but they follow Buddhism as a, a way of life, as a philosophy. And if we include all of those people, then we have quite a large religion. We probably have the fourth largest religion in the world, Christianity being first, then Islam, then Hinduism. Hinduism, and then Buddhism. And we did talk about Hinduism already this month because we really need to talk about Hinduism first because Buddhism kind of comes from Hinduism. Hinduism is the mom. Uh, Buddhism is kind of the baby, if you want a weird analogy like that. But um, the ideas of karma, lots of the same gods. Um, I remember when I went to, uh, I was in Nepal, a very Hindu country, went to Tibet. And when I was in Tibet, this very Buddhist country, saw some of the same gods like Shiva and Krishna and Ganesh. And I was like, what in the world? These are Hindu gods. And my friends were like, duh, Hindu, Buddhism comes from Hinduism. Don't, don't you know anything? And I felt so dumb. Um, but it's hopefully that'll never happen to you because now you know that Buddhism kind of comes from Hinduism. We'll talk more about that history in a moment. But they do believe in karma. That's an idea from Hinduism that there's good karma, good acts, bad karma, kind of bad acts or deeds or living out. And, and, and things are very circular, like you will be reincarnated. They believe in reincarnation for the most part, um, as similar as, as Hindus do. And if you're good and have good karma, then you will come back as something better. If not, uh, you'll come back as something worse. Potentially, you will keep being reincarnated until you can reach nirvana, which is this state of nothingness. No pain, no suffering, no good or bad, no uh, spoon, as, as we like to joke about. But um, there's two different types, uh, two main different types of Buddhism. The Theravada Buddhism, which is the first kind of Buddhism that I showed you in Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, uh, Burma, 
And it's the, the Buddhism that you might see with um, giving little offerings to Buddha. It's, it has its, I would say, maybe just my opinion, that it's much more superstitious than maybe other types of Buddhism. But uh, that, that's just my opinion of looking on as an outsider. And then the other type of Buddhism is Mahajana Buddhism, which is the more Eastern Buddhism of China, Japan. Um, and then under that subcategory would be Tibetan and Mongolian Buddhism, which, which I probably know the most about that type of Buddhism since I've been to Tibet a few times and got very interested in the Dalai Lama, his life, his story, the movie Seven Years in Tibet. Anybody ever see that movie with Brad Pitt? You girls love him. And, uh, and, and I was just really fascinated by that religion. And so I, that's probably the, 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 the type of Buddhism that I know the most about. But then there's a whole other type of Buddhism that may, may be the most amount of people fall into. And the type of Buddhism is maybe uh, just called like an atheistic Buddhism or uh, philosophy Buddhism, and that you really don't believe in a god or gods, but you just have this Buddhist philosophy, and maybe you hold to the four noble truths. We'll talk about what that is, or the eight, uh, eighth noble, the eight noble pathway to righteous living. Maybe you hold to that, uh, or maybe you just hold to a Buddhist meditation, or you like meditating, or maybe you consider, uh, you know, friends that consider themselves Buddhist, but they really don't know anything about the gods or Buddha. They just like um, like living with compassion and, and joy. And, and so one of the things I want to say as we begin to study Buddhism is that there's, there's some great things within Buddhism. I, I think, my opinion is that there's some truth to maybe quite a bit of truth, because truth is true. Uh, we, we believe in absolute truth as, as Christians, and we would say that there, either there's something right or there's something wrong, and if two contradictory things exist, then one's right and one's wrong. Uh, that's what we would stay, stand for as Christians. And it seems like there's a lot of truths within Buddhism. Let me just give you a big picture of what I'm talking about here, because that might throw you off a little bit, but I don't mean to. Um, Buddhists believe in the, the four great illimitables, that you should try and to strive for these four things, but you can never have enough. You can never get further, far enough. And we as Christians would probably say, because they're divine attributes and God is limitless, but here they are. And, and you would probably agree that these things are good. Loving kindness, compassion, joy in others, and self-control. Like those are very true things. Those are very good things, as we would say as Christians. And so I just want to, be, to begin with, um, I don't want to demonize Buddhist or Buddhism and say, oh, it's, it's, it's all wrong. It's all of the devil. It's, it's, it's totally and completely a demon religion. And, and there are aspects. I should go the other, other extreme and say, you know, I've, I've studied Tibetan Buddhism and there are aspects where people will meditate and try to get a demon inside of them and then run around and like scream and like shake their head. And that I would say, that's like demon worship. That's what that is. But then there's other just philosophies of Buddhism that I would say, oh, someone's striving for the four unlimitables, uh, loving kindness, compassion, joy, self-control, joy in others. I would say, well, that's, that's good stuff. That's, that's part of what is on this earth as a part of truth. And so I just wanted to, to say that and, and, and to say big picture that there's, there seems to be a lot of good stuff in Buddhism, but there is mistruths, untruths, that as Christians we would say, that's not true, that, that's incorrect, and then, and then would, would say, well, there's good news for, for Buddhists, and the good news is Jesus Christ, but we'll get on to that in a moment. But I just wanted to say that as far as um, uh, an introduction. So let's talk about Buddha, the founder of Buddhism. 
uh, the word Buddha means? Anybody know? I heard it mumbled, but you don't, you don't want to scream an answer and then be like, no, that's wrong. So I, I understand. Uh, it means, anybody get it, the enlightened one or the awakened one or uh, something along those lines. And so it, it means the enlightened one. And of course, uh, you may be familiar with the fat Buddha. Um, I think this Buddha, I could be wrong, but this Buddha seems to be more the Eastern Buddha of uh, Japan uh, and, then, and then maybe Thailand. I, I've never seen the fat Buddha in Tibetan Buddhism, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's, he's around in the form of fat Buddha. Um, but then there is also the skinny Buddha, and uh, these are both images of a same guy, potentially a guy that existed in history, but we'll talk about that in just a second. And um, for, if you're thinking about like the guy in history, the guy in history, Buddha, um, he was probably very skinny because he did a lot of fasting. But in some cultures, it's very good to be fat. In our culture, it's, it's I guess, not as good to be fat. But in some cultures, like a fat person would be considered, oh, they must have a lot of money. They're very wealthy. They have enough food to eat. And they're considered uh, like, like, wow, sweet. Like, it's like we in the United States are like, oh, you must have a lot of money and you're rich and have a lot of leisure time if you're tan. And so we're like, oh, cool, they're tan. And, but, but in other countries, it's like, oh, they must have a lot of luxury and money and wealth if they're fat. And so uh, in those, I, I, I guess that idea has portrayed itself onto Buddha. And if we want to uh, give Buddha honor and recognition, they would in that culture make him fat Buddha. Um, I think that's how, I could be wrong. If I am, come talk to me, correct me. But I think that's where it comes from um, as far as fat Buddha and skinny Buddha. But it's, it's potentially the same guy that it, it maybe existed in history, maybe not. His name is down at the bottom if you're taking notes. Uh, Siddhartha is, is how, you, how they usually pronounce his name. It's his actual name of a guy that lived in the 400s or 500s BC. Is that a long time ago? I think so. Uh, contemporary with, if you're looking at the Christian Bible, the Old Testament, uh, the contemporaries with Buddha could potentially be maybe Jeremiah, maybe Isaiah, maybe the Assyrian or the Babylonian um, stories of, of uh, persecution and, and overtaking Israel could be happening at the same time as Siddhartha who lived. But what's so interesting and fascinating about the stories of Buddha is that none of them were written down until about 500 years after he lived. And so what you have are all these stories of Buddha. And I'll, I'll tell you the story of Buddha, his life. And some of them seem very exaggerated. Some of them seem like legends. Some of them seem very like parable-ish, like, um, like stories that meant to teach you something. And, and so what probably happened is uh, many historians are very much in arguing about whether Buddha actually lived, this guy named Siddhartha, whether he was an actual historical person or whether he was not an actual historical person, because we really don't know, because his story really wasn't written down until 500 years later. And so we have variations of all these stories from different cultures around India and into China and Nepal and down in Southeast Asia. We have different stories of Siddhartha's life. And and I, I was listening to a Buddhist documentary and one of the Buddhist teachers was just like, because um, we as Westerners would be like, dude, what, what, who was the real Buddha? What did he really do? And the, this documentary, this guy was going on saying, you know, it doesn't really matter about the real historical Buddha because what we have are stories and the stories teach what is true. And so if we have the stories, then we have the true teachings of this religion. And I was like, 
what? That doesn't make any sense to me as a Westerner and, and wanting historical data. Because in my mind, it's like, well, what if there really was a guy named Siddhartha and he said some really great stuff, but then in the 500 years between Siddhartha's life and when, uh, when the story was written down, stories and legends just got added in, and so we really don't know what he really said. That is very unlike the story of Jesus. Because within Jesus' lifetime, we know that he was crucified uh, and then rose again. But if he was to live to, you know, a, a, an old man, you could say within his time frame, not his, his actual life, but within his time frame of when, you know, he could have lived if, if he lived a full life and wasn't killed on the cross. Uh, the stories, um, the gospels were, were written and it's like, oh, that's pretty cool to think that, you know, John, an actual disciple of Jesus, uh, Matthew, an actual disciple of Jesus, uh, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, either wrote Gospels or letters that we now have recorded. And Paul saw the resurrected Jesus, lived around the same time frame. Luke, living around the same time frame, got firsthand accounts of the Gospel that, he, uh, that we now have as the Gospel of Luke. That's pretty cool because whatever Jesus said, we have, we've written it down and we have... We have record of what he actually did and what he said. Whereas the Buddha, we're not really sure. 500 years passed between potentially a real guy, we, we don't know for sure, living in the 400s or 500s BC until his life was actually written down. Does that all make sense? All right, it was a lot of information. But uh, so when we'll, if I tell you like different versions of the story, as we're talking, you can just kind of understand that there's lots of different versions of the Buddha. And some of them are, you know, make him into this like superhero. Some of them are more like, this seems like it could have happened. This seems historical. This seems like a normal thing that would have happened in the 500s BC in the Southeast Asian culture. But uh, here we go. The story of Buddha. Are you ready? All right, so Buddha, uh, here's a little boy. Uh, he was born in present-day Nepal. Nepal uh, wasn't actually its own country until like the 1700s. And so back in the day, 400, 500 BC, it was a, a part of the greater kingdom of India. But because Buddha was born there and now Nepal is its own country, if you go to Nepal, they take a lot of pride that this is the birthplace of Buddha. When I first uh, flew there, got off the airplane, they were like, Namaste, welcome to Nepal, the birthplace of Buddha. They're just excited to tell you and happy to tell you that Buddha was born there because he's this great prophet, potentially someone that, as we know, the name Buddha means God enlightened. He's the enlightened one. But Buddha was born, uh, Siddhartha, I might go back and forth on, on what I call him, um, but Siddhartha was born to a woman in, in North uh, Nepal, what was the kingdom of Northern India. And his mom died seven days after he was born. So he starts off with a very uh, a life that's going to be full of suffering. You know, his, his own mother died giving birth to him. And so his dad raises him. Here's a picture. Uh, Buddha is the one with black hair in the middle of this picture. And above his head, someone is holding a white umbrella, which is this idea that he was kept from any kind of pain or suffering. He lived in palaces. I guess he, the story is, one of the stories about Siddhartha is that he had three palaces, one for each of the seasons that are in Nepal, uh, the rainy season, the hot season, the colder season. And so he'd go to these different palaces. He was kept and hidden and sheltered from anything bad. If someone got sick or if someone started, uh, you know, got hurt, they would be removed from Siddhartha's life because his dad wanted to shelter him from any type of suffering because his dad was 
a crazy person, I guess. Um, anyway, his dad wanted him to be a king um, and to, to, I guess, to, you know, to remove his son, keep his son from suffering or experiencing any kind of suffering. And he was just pampered. He was homeschooled. He was um, kept <laughs> from anything bad. And he lived in his little palace and never got out. Uh, did he get married? Well, some versions of the story, they say no, uh, he didn't get married. Uh, he said, in, in this version of the story, he said, objects, objects of affection, uh, this is you girls, are like poisonous flowers. And so, whatever. Uh, so Buddha, in, in some versions, a very small ver- part of the versions of the story, he doesn't get married. But in most versions of the story, he does get married. Um, and he marries his first cousin, <laughs> which we just laugh at and we're like, what? He did what? Like, doesn't he know anything? Didn't that culture know anything about, like, genetic mutations and rare diseases and deformities that could show up when there's a recessive gene and a recessive gene that come together and have a baby when a double recessive gene could become a dominant gene? Don't, didn't they know any of that? And the answer is no, they didn't know any of that. So it was popular back in the day. Um, actually, it was quite popular until just like 100 years ago to marry your first cousin, which seems like that's weird. Like, what's wrong with people? Anyways, uh, that's what, what happened, and it was totally normal back then. And so he gets married. Uh, one of the stories, this, this one seems like very much parable or legend story, is that they were, uh, him and his wife, their honeymoon lasted for like 10 years. One night they were making out on a roof, and they rolled off the roof, and they fell And instead of dying, they kept making out and landed softly on a giant lotus flower. Doesn't that kind of sound like a Hollywood fairy tale kind of thing? Um, Because lotus flowers are usually like this big, like as big as your hand. And so you can't fall on one of those and live. Anyways, um, so that, I mean, that just sounds very, very folk legend story. And once again, we as Westerners would say, you know, so we don't even have the historical Buddha. We can't know what really happened. And so that discredits his story. But in an Eastern mindset, uh, if you are a Buddhist, you would just say, oh, the story itself has truth. And and we know that because it it has has self-preserved itself. And so it must be true. Um, And so so if we laugh at some of the details, they wouldn't. They would just say, oh, it's a part of the story. and We could learn something here. So uh, Buddha is living this fantastic homeschooled shelter altered life, uh, married his cousin, you know, perfect day, perfect life, making out on roofs and falling off and landing on lotus flowers, just a perfect, very sheltered life until he's 29 years old. And he sees uh, what's come to know as the four sights. And if you've studied Buddhism, you might be able to list the four things that Buddha saw when he one day got out of the palace. I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's very legendary-ish, folk legend-ish to think that, you know, somebody could live for 29 years and never get out of the palace. But that's according to the story how it goes. He gets out of the palace and he sees four things. He sees an old man which I think is the guy on the right. That's uh, Buddha is the guy on the, uh, off the horse talking to, uh, we think, the old man in this picture at least, uh, then a sick man on the far left, and then he sees bones of a corpse, a dead person. And so that makes up the three things that he saw, uh, three of the four. And so obviously he sees suffering for the very first time in his life, for the very first time in his 29 years of, of life, he sees suffering. And he also sees the fourth thing that he sees. Anybody know? A holy man. He sees a holy man who is in the world and um, amidst this suffering, and yet he seems unaffected by the suffering. 
and he sees the, the holy man to take a, a small rabbit trail upon holy men. Uh, if he was living in northern India around 400, 500 BC, then he was probably, if he saw a holy man, it was probably a Hindu holy man that he saw because the, 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 uh, India was very uh, Hinduistic, at least like the, the Vedas and a very old type of Hinduism at the time. And we'll, we'll talk about that and how Buddha maybe reformed some of the Hinduism of that time in a second. But he sees a holy man, uh, someone who makes a living out of being an ascetic, someone who maybe lives on the care of others, like begs for money, and maybe just meditates and uh, provides teaching or provides, um, I don't know, they just, be, they just live kind of on their own. And I remember when I was in Nepal, I saw some of these holy men. They're called Babas, or uh, I forget the other name. And here's one of them. He looks pretty cool, just smiling, asking for money. And they just kind of sit around all day. They're, they're homeless. Uh, they, they, they don't really have a job. They ask for money. They smoke a lot of marijuana and hallucinogens. And if you pay them enough money, you could go to them and ask them for advice, which I always thought is like, wait a minute. So here's this homeless beggar who smokes marijuana and is a drug addict. And I'm going to ask him for advice. I don't think so. But, um, but I don't want to just make fun of their, their ways and their lifestyle. The, there are very ascetic people in the Hindu religion that have given up a life of any kind of pleasure. Um, and, and maybe not, they're not as bad as I made them seem, but they did seem like just dirty men that grew their hair really long and wore weird makeup. But um, they, they are holy men, they're ascetics and, and within Hinduism, and they've given up their life to live uh, alone, be by themselves, fast pray, meditate, etc. So back to the story. Buddha sees the three sites of suffering and the one holy person. He goes back into his palace and decides he wants to be an ascetic, a, a holy man, someone who, is, who gives up things. And so by this time, the, as the story goes, he has a wife and a son. And the, the, this, the story is, is that Buddha goes to their bedroom one night, sees the wife and the son sleeping and has to make a decision to give up his family and, and go be a holy person or to um, continue living his life in the palace. And But we as Westerners would probably just look at the story and be like, dude, what a jerk father and, and, and husband for just leaving and to find himself. Um, we would say, what a silly man, what a silly story. You know, you don't, you're not supposed to leave your life, uh, your wife and your, and your baby. That's dumb. Um, but Buddhists would see that as, oh, he, had, he could have lived the life of, of pleasure and had a wife and a son, but he gave that all up to go find enlightenment. And they see that as a very holy act, whereas probably we, most of us in the West would say, dude, you know, be a father and a wife. Don't be a jerk. Um, but anyways, so he leaves in the middle of the night, uh, as the story goes, rides off into uh, the woods or rides off to go be by himself. And there he, he starts meditating and becoming a holy person, becoming a holy man or an ascetic. One is who's, who's stopped living in the ways of the world and goes on to, me- he meditates, he sits and doesn't move for long periods of time. He uh, engages in self-mortification, which is like whipping yourself or hurting yourself, hitting yourself in order to beat yourself up, to, to say no to your body. He starves himself. Some of the stories say he ate a leaf per day. Some stories say he ate a nut per day. Some stories, maybe the most popular, the one you heard is uh, he ate one grain of rice per day. Have you heard that 
part of the story. He, like during this season of his life, he, that's all he ate, starved himself. Some of the stories say he only drank his own urine. <laughs> oh, gross. Um, sorry to ruin your breakfast. Uh, other stories say he, he stood on one foot um, for days at a time. Uh, other stories say um, just various things about fasting and giving up his life. One story says he almost drowned in a river while bathing because he was just, you know, only eating one piece of rice per day isn't a lot of food. And so he was bathing in a river and got washed away and almost drowned because he didn't have enough energy to swim. But he sort of ends that extreme ascetic lifestyle. And there's a lot more to this story that we don't have time to go into. When he remembers and has this vision and meditation of his father plowing a field, and he thinks about that and meditates on that and sees that there's good in, in working. There's good in, in, in if you're going to work, you have to eat to be able to work. And so there's good in living your life the way that you, you should be and should live. And so he, he ends this extreme ascetic lifestyle. And then at some point decides he's going to sit under a tree until he reaches um, nirvana, until he reaches, um, um, I guess, enlightenment. Have you heard this part of the story? He sits under a Bodhi tree. This is a picture of of a Bodhi tree. It has lots of weird roots coming out from the branches. But he sits under this Bodhi tree and he says he's going to sit there until he becomes enlightened. One version of the story uh, says he sits under the tree for 49 days meditating. One version of the story, he just sits under the tree for one day meditating. We're not really sure. Again, we don't know because the story wasn't written down until 500 years after he lived. But anyways, he sits there and obtains uh, what he thinks is nirvana. He He has this teaching of the four noble truths and the eightfold noble path to enlightenment, which I'll tell you what those are in just a second. And so he obtains enlightenment. And then from there, he goes on and spends the rest of his life, the remaining 45-ish years of his life, teaching other people about the ways of, of how to reach enlightenment, the ways of how to reach um, uh, nirvana or nothingness or to end suffering, which is very fascinating because whether Buddha Siddhartha was an actual historical character or not, he really did begin to found a, a new religion, whether it was just a bunch of stories that were put together that founded Buddhism or whether it was a real historical figure that founded Buddhism. We're not really sure as far as Westerners and historians uh, what happened there. But what's amazing is that it brought some well-needed reform to Hinduism that, that was so prevalent of its day. And we as Christians, as Westerners, would say these reforms were very good. For instance, in Hinduism, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the caste system. The caste system has, has since been outlawed as, as a part of Hindu lifestyle. I think in the days of Gandhi, when they got their freedom from the British colony, they, they outlawed the caste system. Of course, there's still ramifications of that in India today. But in the 400s to 500s BC, the caste system was supposedly in full swing, full effect, which meant that if you were at the top, you were rich, you had wealth, you had books and learning and money and, and holiness, and you were seen as someone who had all the answers. You were seen as someone who was about to be reincarnated as someone better. And then at the very bottom of society, the majority of people um, were, were very low-class individuals, and they were low-class because it was believed that they had must have done something wrong in a former life. And so they were untouchable. They were, you know, if you were handicapped or um, if you were 
in any way very poor or very disenfranchised, you would be just considered, oh, you deserve that because of another life that you must have lived. You lived poorly, and so you deserve the life that you're living. And so you had to be in this caste system. And there was no working your way up the caste system. Whereas Buddha and his reforms, the Siddhartha reforms, he said, you know, he brings this religion. He brings religion, uh, for the most part, to the common people, to the untouchable class, and said that anyone can obtain enlightenment. You don't have to be a part of the Brahmin high upper class to, to, to be able to be a part of religion. You, the average everyday person, could be a part of religion. We see that in the West as something that's very liberating um, from these strict social classes. So Buddhism does that for Hinduism. It's this reform that I think is, is pretty cool. That It's what's brought to Hinduism. Other things is he rejects the performance of rituals. He says that lots of rituals are just for the outside, not for the inside. He ends, uh, there was a lot of animal sacrifices in this old ancient Hinduism. He ends that and says, you know, if you're going to follow me and my ways, my teachings, you know, you're, you shouldn't cause suffering to another individual or to an animal. He goes on and he teaches these things. Uh, he lives for another 45 years and then he dies just like every other person that dies. And his death, uh, supposedly when he was around 80 or so, according to some versions of the story, he ate a last meal, which was either pork or depending on how you translate it, mushrooms, or depending upon the story, maybe he was poisoned right before he, so he was actually killed or murdered because he was poisoned. But Buddha, of course, beating Buddha, knew that the food was poisoned, but he didn't want to offend the cook, so he ate the food anyways, which is a fascinating story to me. Um, it seems very parable-ish, very you know, legendary-ish, um, that someone would know they were getting poisoned but didn't want to offend anyone, so he ate the food and then died. And then I guess right before he died, he, he taught them one final lesson, uh, said his last words, all... Composite things pass away. Strive for your own liberation with diligence, his final words. And then he, he dies. He passes away, and, uh, but maybe on lives his teachings through the ones he taught it to. So his teachings, the, the way he found enlightenment, the four noble truths, they're very quickly, life is suffering. The cause of suffering is desires. And maybe as Christians so far, we would agree with these. Like, yeah, there is suffering in the world. And maybe um, having desires, you know, you had expectations, desires for something, and it falls short because our world is broken and fallen. Um, it, maybe some, some uh, suffering comes from desires and not living up to those desires. But we would disagree with this next one that would say, uh, you can overcome desires in the mind. And that's just a very simplified way of, of talking about this bigger idea that there is no suffering. That suffering is only in your mind. If you hurt your hand, your hand doesn't really hurt because there is no hand. There's no world. There's no pain. There's no good. There's no evil. There's nothing. And if you could realize that, this, this final thing in the noble truth, you could see through suffering, you will realize that there is no suffering because there is no world, then it will end. And the other big thing that, that Buddha found when he was enlightened was the eightfold noble path. And so sometimes you'll see a wheel with eight points around it, which has to do with um, these various points, the, the right view, having the right intentions, the right speech, if we have the right action, the right livelihood, the right effort, concentration, the right mindfulness, then you can overcome suffering. You can realize through, especially through meditation, that there is no world, there is no suffering, and you will obtain nirvana or enlightenment when you realize through meditation mainly and, and right living 
that the world doesn't actually exist. You can end the stages of reincarnation for yourself and become enlightened and realize that there is nothing. So um, an overview of Buddhism seems like it's, it's kind of, you know, as we look on as Christians, you know, we talk about good news and how awesome Jesus came to save us and we'll have life eternal. But Buddhists, it seems like a depressing religion maybe to us because we would look on and say, oh, the great grand goal of Buddhism is to become nothing. That, that that's, in the end, to become nothing is, is the way to go, is, is their hope. And that does seem like a very depressing thing. Um, and, and they would say becoming nothing is, you know, this, this great goal of society. It's the perfection that can be reached. And we would see that as kind of sad, but it is what it is. Um, one of their great, uh, you know, we have the cross. Buddhists have this lotus flower. And the idea of the lotus flower is it's, it's this flower that grows in a pond. And usually ponds are very dirty, full of slime and silt, sewage, whatever. The dirtier the pond, the more uh, life plant life that's going to be there because there's more minerals and nutrients for the plants to grow. And so the idea of the lotus flower is that it comes up from the dirt and the slime and the grossness of the pond. It finds itself on the top and then blooms and is somehow miraculously white and perfect and unblemished. And so Buddhists would say in this analogy that through Buddhism, through the noble path or through the Eightfold Noble Path and then the Four Noble Truths, that someone can obtain uh, nirvana or to become this white, awesome flower that has come up from suffering and the slime and the dirt of this world through works. And someone mentioned it when we were talking that Buddhism is kind of a religion of works, doing good things, doing good karma, so that someday you might have the chance to have a higher, high enough life form that you might be able to obtain nirvana or enlightenment. And it's, it does have a lot to say with works and doing good things. And so once again, we'll... I'll go back to this verse that we read at the beginning of Sunday School where Paul says, it's our sweet quote of the day on the back of the, the Sunday School bulletin. We call it the skillet. And uh, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's our great hope as followers of Jesus, that Jesus was who he said he was. He died and then didn't just die like every other human being, but was risen again with a glorified body and came to testify that the words that he said were true. And, and if we look at the teachings of Buddha and we just ask, how do we know that he was truly enlightened? How do we know that his story is even true? Well, there's just a lot of faith that goes behind that. And, and if, if you truly are a Buddhist and have this faith in Buddhism, you have to work your way to being salvation, and they would say salvation is just to become nothingness. And so this final point that I just want to end with is that we as Christians, we as followers of Jesus, have good news to tell Buddhists. We could tell them, maybe you imagine a, a Tibetan, and there, these are the lots of buildings like this in Tibet, where they have this holy building, and Tibetans will just walk around it in a cl- counterclockwise way, and this idea that the going revolutions, and they'll spin prayer wheels. That's like a row. I don't know if the picture is made out well enough, but it's like a row of prayer wheels, and you'll spin those, and then they will spin counterclockwise, or they'll have uh, prayer wheels and spin those counterclockwise, and, and just this idea that prayers are being said, and that round and round it goes, suffering upon suffering, and you're, you're reborn, and there's more suffering. But eventually, you can find nirvana if you work your way and live a good enough life, if you do enough 
prostrations. Here's a picture of a guy just doing a prostration. And he'll, he'll, he'll go around an entire building, moving like one foot at a time, doing a prostration in order to work off bad karma, in order to have good karma. And, and we as Christians could say to someone like a Tibetan Buddhist that's working off their salvation, meditating for hours, spinning prayer wheels, walking around buildings, we would say aimlessly, just walking around, trying to work off your bad deeds to, to have enough good deeds. We could say, you know, there, there's this great idea within Christianity that, that while you were in sin, while you were still in suffering, Christ died for you. And, and this maybe a potentially helpful analogy to them would be, you know, Christ uh, did enough prostrations for himself and for you. He, he, he was God himself. He came down. And you don't have to work your way to find, you know, this way out of suffering. But while we were still sinners, um, Romans 5, 6 says that you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8 says, uh, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it's at this idea that, that we'll end our talk today and end this talk about world religions that our religion, uh, Christianity, if Christ really was who he said he was, if Christ really taught that he was God himself and that he came to die for our sins, then what great news that we have for people following other religions, people following other paths towards enlightenment or truth or glory, that, that we can say that it is by grace that when we were still dead in our sins, while we were still in the sludge of slime of this world and its suffering, Christ died for us, and that is the great hope that we can have and that we can um, think about and, and know that we can be justified because what of, of what our God did. So let's close in prayer. God, we do thank you for this, this beautiful picture that, that you did come and die for our sins. And God, we praise you. We, we thank you and you alone. God, would you give us opportunities to, to speak to people that, that we may know that are following Buddhist philosophies that are, are very potentially very circular and, and coming back and potentially hopeless. God, would you allow us to give hope to give words of encouragement and the good news that you are God, Jesus, that you came to this world, that you suffered for our sins, and that we can, can, can trust in you for salvation. So we worship you and praise you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. All right, you're dismissed. Uh, no Sunday school next week. Enjoy Easter with your family. Uh, we'll see you the week after that. Peace out.